0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all
1: areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading followed by this week's message. Salita ang pinagmulan ng buhay at ang buhay na ito ay ilaw dahil ito ang nagbibigay liwanag sa mga tao. Ang ilaw na ito ay nagliwanag sa kadiliman at hindi ito nadaig ng kadiliman. Isinugo ng Diyos ang isang tao na ang pangalan ay Juan. Isinugo siya upang magpatutuo kung sino ang ilaw upang sa pamamagitan ng kanyang patutuo sumampalataya ang lahat ng tao. Hindi si Juan ang mismong ilaw, kundi naparito siya upang magpatutuo kung sino ang ilaw. Ang tunay na ilaw na nagbibigay liwanag sa lahat ng tao ay dumating na sa mundo. Naparito siya sa mundo at kahit nanirika ang mundo sa pamamagitan niya, hindi siya kinilala ng mundo. Pumunta siya sa sarili niyang mga kababayan, pero tinanggihan siya ng mga karamihan. Ngunit ang lahat ng tumanggap at sumampalataya sa Kanya ay binigyan niya ng karapatang maging anak ng Diyos. Naging anak sila ng Diyos hindi sa pamamagitan ng pisikal na pagkasina o dahil sa kagustuhan ng tao, kundi dahil sa kalooban ng Diyos. Nagkatamangtaong salita ng namuhay sa nakasama natin. Nakita namin ang katakilaan niya bilang kaisa-isang anak ng ama puspusya ng biyaya at pawang katotohanan ang mga sinasabi niya. Ito ang banal na salita ng Diyos. This is the word of the Lord. Uh,
0: I still remember when my first child was born. She actually doesn't know I'm going to tell this story because she slipped over at her friend's house. And I just saw her this morning. didn't give her the heads up. But it's not embarrassing, I promise. Um, <laughs> I remember the first time when my, ch- my, when my first child was born, uh, was oldest of four. Uh, we were still living up in Boston, and what struck me about a newborn child, and Mike and Aaron seeing your little one makes me feel the same way again, is just how tiny these babies are. Uh, you realize that when you uh, see like uh, like baby delivery scenes in movies or on TV, they're using like a 13-year-old kid <laughs> dressing up like a baby, right? That baby is like. I mean, just so tiny. I still remember that's what struck me the most, the first time I held her in my hands. Just such a tiny little person. We were living in Boston, and so, you know, when time came for us to leave the hospital, uh, we had to put her in the car. We had gone and strapped that car seat in with like belt upon belt. I mean, it was in there. We went to a local fire station to help us get a car seat in because this was pre like YouTube days. And so that thing was strapped in there. And so we put her in there. And I still remember very distinctly, we had to drive from the hospital back to our home, we had to get out on the highway. And I remember driving 40 miles an hour on that highway. <laughs> and terrified, looking at all, judging every person who was driving after the speed limit by, uh, zipping by me, thinking what kind of psychopathic society do we live in? <laughs> that we hurl down concrete corridors and steel traps and we call this normal, right? Just this deep sense of how fragile that life is, the season of Advent is a time where we ponder the impossible fact that God Almighty became a child, that God Almighty entered into that kind of frailty, that kind of fragility, that when his parents first held him in his hands they were struck at the utter fragility of this life, the author of life himself. And every time Advent season comes around, we you know read some familiar texts, but for me, the wonder of what has happened is for me one of the most important things to constantly rekindle, the author of life, the one who holds the universe up, the one who sustains every atom in your body right now took on that kind of frailty for us. And so with that in mind, we want to look at this text from the Gospel According to John. And I want to point out three things from our passage today. Uh, First, I want to point us to, to an unbelievable claim that the Apostle John is making for us today. Secondly, I want to point each of us to an incredible comfort that comes along with it. But then thirdly, there's an immediate call that's being addressed to each one of us. So let's look at each of those. Uh, first, there's an unbelievable claim. Let me read verses 4 and 5 to you, and then verses 9 and 10 again. Uh, verse 4, it says, In him, and Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then jumping to verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So here's the claim of the Advent season. Again, the familiarity of this time of year uh, can work against what we're trying to do here. But the the claim of the Advent season is that God has broken into our darkness. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And that's a breathtaking claim. I still remember, um, there's an essay that uh, I remember reading by C.S. Lewis. It's called Meditations in a Toolshed. And he uh, invites us to imagine that we are walking into our tool, sh- a tool shed kind of in the middle of a summer day. You have to imagine that you're out of the city, you're in some country home somewhere, right? Uh, but that you're walking on the backyard, you're in the tool shed, the door closes behind you, and suddenly you find yourself standing in complete darkness. And as you're standing in complete darkness, one the thing, one thing that you notice, the most striking thing in that entire room is a single beam of light that is in the middle of the tool shed coming down through a crack in the roof of that shed. And you can see the dust specks floating in it and it is the most mesmerizing, striking, the most beautiful thing that you can see before you. And so you're drawn to it so you begin to walk over to this ray of light, this beam of light. But as you walk closer to it, your eyes follow up along the path of that beam and before you know, you're no longer looking at a beam of light. You're now looking along this beam of light and you're looking out of that tool shed into an entire, uh, entirely different world. A world glowing with the light of summer, a world green with the abundance of life. And I'll never forget that image, not only because of our striking, that shift of, uh, of what you see, uh, uh, how, that, how, how highlighted that is in that essay. But when you think about Advent, the message of Advent is not just that we are in a dark, And there is a ray of light that has now come through that's gonna save our souls and take us up out of this dark and broken world. That's not the message of Advent, as amazing as that would be. The message of Advent is that in Jesus, this ray of light, the light that has broken into the world, that if you draw close to Jesus, if you step into the light of who Jesus is, you'll not only look at the beam of light, but you'll begin to look up and realize there is an entirely Life and abundance that has begun to crash into this world because of the birth of King Jesus. There is a wholly new world coming. It's not just saving our souls out of this darkness. It is an entirely new world crashing in and healing all that is broken. And at Advent, we together recite the belief that this new world is coming, that God has come in Jesus Christ to make all things new. Now that's a breathtaking claim, isn't it? And if that claim is true, it's a claim that would change how we see everything. It would change how you'd see your life. It would change how you see suffering. It would change how you would face obstacles. It would change how you contend for what is good and right and just in this world. Now you might hear that and you're here and you you maybe grew up in the faith or maybe you didn't or you've been wrestling with a lot of doubts in your own life. You might hear that and you say, that's a great idea, I really wish that were true. But when I'm facing real darkness, a nice idea doesn't cut it. How could I possibly know that Christmas is true? How could I possibly know That there is this world of life and hope and abundance. How could I know that that's become crashing? It sounds fantastical. How could I know? And it's an important question, isn't it? Because when you look at the Christmas story, it can kind of feel like mythology, can it? So you hear stories about angels visiting people, you hear about a virgin birth guiding stars and shepherds and wise men, and all of those things sound like great and touching and sentimental stories, but it also kind of sounds like mythology. Like you might think, you know what, some days I wonder if maybe there was a set of historical facts that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, probably existed. There was maybe some historical facts but probably the early church embellished those facts in order to fit their own beliefs. And their own hopes and their own desires. Like as modern reasonable people, isn't that something that you would think there were basic facts and the early church must have embellished and reshaped those facts to fit their beliefs? And if that's true, how could I possibly have hope in the midst of the darkness that I'm facing? Well, let me suggest this to you, that actually if you look very closely at the history of the early church, it doesn't look like that there were facts that they, reshaped to fit their beliefs. It actually looks like there were beliefs that they had to reshape because the facts of Jesus were so undeniable. It was so compelling. The facts that eyewitnesses brought to them completely changed and they had to go back to their Old Testament beliefs and revisit what it was that they believed God to be promising. Uh, Let me try to put it this way. Christianity in the earliest days, you might remember, was a movement within Judaism. Uh, within the Jewish, the Hebraic faith, the bedrock belief is what? It's a belief that there is one God. It's a radical monotheism. right? It's the Shema, this is Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, your lo- the Lord is one. The bedrock belief of this faith, this uh, Old Testament faith, is that God is one. There's one God. But there's also belief that this God is transcendent. He exists outside of time. He's holy, other. He's perfectly spirit. He's un- uh, uncontaminated. He's uh, unspoilable. It's a God who's completely set apart. So there's one God. This one God is transcendent and holy, other. And the belief was that this God would one day come at the very end of human history to judge the world and to raise the righteous from the dead. Like this is the foundation. This is the bedrock belief. Of the folks who first come to know who Jesus is, and then Jesus of Nazareth comes along, and the birth that he uh, uh, goes through is so remarkable, filled with so many eyewitnesses. The life that he leads is filled with so many miracles, so many lives transformed. Jesus comes along, and his teachings are, "I'm the way to God, and there is no other." Jesus of Nazareth comes along and says, "I deserve to be. I will receive the worship." of those around me. Jesus comes along and he claims that he can forgive sins. He raises people from the dead. He makes all these claims in his ministry, claims that for a first century Jew would have completely disqualified him as a prophet of God. I mean, these were blasphemous claims. God is transcendent. God is one. This man claims to do what only God can do. And not only in his teachings, but in his life in his miracles. We see that he begins to raise people from the dead, not at the end of history, but in the middle of history. We learn that this man was crucified, hung upon a tree, cursed by God, only to rise again from the dead. That resurrection was now breaking into history, not waiting for us the end. Of history, and suddenly all these facts an empty tomb, all these eyewitnesses, all these encounters, everything about the life of Jesus, the early church, the facts of his historical reality were so compelling, so undeniable, that these radical monotheists had to begin to say, Well, we don't fully have it worked out, but Jesus is to be worshiped because he rose from the grave. We don't have it all fully worked out, but Jesus somehow is the eternal Son of God who has come to save us from our sins. And suddenly all then for the next 300 years, think about that, 300 years the early church wrestles with these beliefs until they they become clear as to who this Jesus is. You wanna know how you can know that the message of Advent is true? is because in the early church, people had to revisit their cherished beliefs because the historical facts were undeniable. And they were willing to face persecution and death because they could not deny that this Jesus was who exactly who he claimed to be. You see, the early church weren't gullible, superstitious people changing facts to fit their beliefs. No, they were rational, truth-seeking people that revisit their, revisited their beliefs in light of undeniable facts. And so it's an unbelievable claim. But it's a claim if true. If Jesus is who he claims to be, it's a claim that if true, would change your life, would change everything. So that takes us to the second point. First, we looked at this unbelievable claim of Christmas, of Advent. Uh, Secondly, there's also an incredible comfort. Uh, Let me read to you verse 5 first, and then verse 14. Verse 5 says this The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jumping to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's an incredible comfort in this message, and it's this. Uh, One theologian now famously has said, Advent begins in the dark. And that God does some of his best work in the dark. And so if you're here and you're like, I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to observe Advent or even Christmas, I don't even know where to begin. One really great place for you to start practically is just to ask yourself, where is the darkness in my life right now? Where's the darkness in my community uh, where is the darkness that I honestly most times would rather not even acknowledge is there? Because God does some of his best work in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. And when we look at the message, the promise that we have here in the Gospel of John, when it says that God, that light shines in the darkness and that darkness has not overcome, it, it is an incredibly comforting promise. Because here's what it means. It means inside the darkness of your suffering. God has entered in. He has entered into that suffering. Verse 14 is startling to me when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I would expect the text to say that uh, the, the word became human, or the word became a body, but instead it says the word became flesh. What does that word flesh evoke for you when you hear that word? It's very intentional. Flesh means it's softness, it's what you scrape, Well, your kid scrapes when they fall off their bike. There's a a delicateness, there's a tenderness to that word. So it's not just that God became a body. God took on flesh. And we heard this last week from Pastor Justin. God became harmable. God became vulnerable. God had elbows that could be scraped. When you think back to my firstborn child that is an infant, God had the same. what one poet called this bird-boned child. That God had that kind of physical softness, that kind of physical vulnerability, that he's entered into our suffering, our vulnerability. He became harmable. He became killable. And that entering in was not just entering into our physical suffering, though some of you, your darkness right now is maybe some kind of a physical ailment, something that you just can't shake. Or it may just be the darkness of being isolated from one another in the midst of the pandemic. But even it's not just physical suffering. Jesus, the word of God, entered in and he knows what it feels like to be deprived of the basic things that he needs. He knows what it feels like to be poor. He knows what it feels like to not have a place to lay his head. He knows what it feels like to weep over the loss of a friend. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed by those he thought he could trust. He knows what it feels like lose he's entered into your suffering and what that means is the message of Advent is not just that there's a God who cares though he does and actually it's not just that there's a God who is near though he is it says there's a God who knows and he's near and he cares If you've ever been in suffering, what is the most, what is the deepest form of suffering or or comfort you can receive? It's when you meet someone who's gone through exactly what you're going through, and they tell you, this is not how it ends. They tell you, there's hope even here. Did you know that in Jesus, God has been through what you've been through? And he says, this is not how it ends. And so he enters into the darkness of our suffering, but he also enters into the darkness of our loneliness. And when you think about what is this image of darkness throughout the Bible, it's not just our suffering and sorrows, but it's also our loneliness. And most most people would say that loneliness is epidemic in our society today. We are the most connected society the world has ever seen, and also the most lonely society the world has ever seen. And God enters into that loneliness. Once again, Jesus knows what it's like to feel alone in the very moment he needed others the most. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood and rejected. He knows what it's like to be unfairly criticized. He knows what it's like to be forgotten. Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son of God, died alone in the dark outside the city gates, abandoned by his friends, crying out, my God, my God, why have you even forsaken? Advent means that the God of the universe has entered into your loneliness so that you might know that there is a God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, are you here today and there's an aching loneliness that you can't seem to shake? you know God is here right now? And he's telling you, you are not alone. You are never alone in Jesus Christ. But what I find strange, and this is true of me, and maybe this resonates with you as well, uh, what I find strange is that oftentimes it's, it's in the moments where I feel like I'm surrounded by the richest and most fulfilling relationships. And every once in a while, moments in your life kind of blaze into transfiguration. You look around, you're like, man, I'm just surrounded by people I love. And in those moments when you're surrounded by even the richest and most fulfilling relationships, if you're like me, isn't there a part of you, there's a pang deep in your soul that still says, but ultimately, I still feel alone because I can't hold on to this long enough. That all these things are going to fade. That loved ones will pass. That kids, I've tried to stop them from growing up. I've tried. You can't do it. That even in the moments of the greatest, fulfilling, most, most uh, overflowing moments of love, you're like, I can't hold on to this. This can't last forever. In the moments when we should be filled with the greatest joy, there's this pang of loneliness. You know what I think that is? That ache of loneliness is the homing signal God left in your soul because you were made for life with him. A love that goes all the way down. A love that never ends. If you go back to verse 14 again, I love, and Justin mentioned this last week as well, but when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And for those of you who don't know, in the the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the portable, temporary house of God that while Israel was wandering through the desert, it was just kind of a tent that they took wherever. And when they got to the Promised Land, they built a real temple, like it was the this, this Temple of Solomon. It was this glory structure. What's interesting to me is to ask the question, why would this passage say tabernacled among us? Shouldn't it say templed among us? Why tabernacled? And as I reflected on that this week, I think the answer is this. It says tabernacle because God is not waiting for you to come to Him in a permanent, immovable place. It says tabernacle because God is willing to go wherever you are, even when it's in the wilderness, in the desert, in an exile, and He's willing to say, "I'm gonna, I'll pull up stakes, and I'm with you, wherever you wander, wherever you find yourself, I will be with you. I will never leave nor forsake you." It's an incredible comfort that's offered here. It's God entering into the darkness of our suffering, God entering into the darkness of our loneliness, but there's one other kind of darkness that we have to make sure we touch on before we move on here. Advent also means that God enters into the darkness of our evil. All right, verse five when it says again, i me read it, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not Overcome, And it's not just he's come into your sorrows and suffering or your loneliness. He's coming into your evil, your sin. And so when you look at the world around us, a world filled with sin and violence and oppression, a world where school shootings become a a blip in the news reel, a a world that's marked by all kinds of violence and exploitation and greed and materialism and difference, a world marked by all these things in the midst of that darkness, God even enters in there. And in case you're tempted to be self-righteous here, it's not just the darkness of the world out there, those folks over there. Yeah, it's your darkness too. It's my sin too, it's my resentment. It's my refusal to forgive, it's my hatred of others. He enters even there and he says, I've come right in this place of darkness, right in the darkest place, I've come and I've entered into that. And you know what happened? The light comes into the darkest part of your dark heart. And you know what we did? We didn't want anything to do with that. Because if the light has come, that means the challenge to my sovereignty. That means I can't rule my own life. That means I'm not lord of my own life. That means I can't do things. That means I can't just live however I want. That means I can't define what I want to do or don't do. And the light breaks into our darkness. And you know what every single one of us has done? We said no. And so we took the light, and we rejected him, and we bound him, and we beat him, and we killed him, and we tried to snuff out the light of the world. Oh, but verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because on the third day, even death and sin in the grave could not hold on to the Son of God. The grave itself had to open up its mouth. Death was defeated. Your sin, my sin was crushed. All of our hatred, all of our hostility, all of our resentment towards God melted away because death could not overcome him. Our darkness could not overcome this light. And so in dying, We sealed our guilt, but in dying, he was sealing our forgiveness by dying in our place, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that leads to the third and final point, an unbelievable claim, an incredible comfort. Lastly, an immediate call. Let me read verses 11 through 13, because this is really the point of this whole passage, I where John says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And so here's the immediate call that the text places before every single one of us here today. It is a call either to receive or to reject. There is no neutrality. You can't sit this one out. You can't put this one on the shelf. That what John is saying is the reason we come with the message of this Jesus, to tell the story of this Jesus, is to issue you a call. You must either receive him as Lord or utterly reject him. And if you receive him, you will find not just that you're made into a better person. The moment you receive him, you'll find that you're made into an entirely new creature. Born anew. So C.S. Lewis again, he, uh, no one has put it better than him, so I keep coming back to this even after all these years. He writes this, I'm trying to here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that Jesus oft- that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, he'd be a lunatic, lunatic, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Receive or reject. But the stunning promise is that for any who would receive him, anybody, it doesn't matter who you are, anybody who would receive him, he's not just making you better. He's remaking you into something entirely new. See, Christianity, the gospel, is not let's teach the horse to jump higher. Let's command the horse to jump better. Christianity is let's command the horse to fly, and let's give it wings. When God, when you receive the good news of Jesus, it's not God saying, okay, try harder, do better, jump higher. It's God saying, now I've made you new, now you can fly, and I've given you these wings. So friends, what will you do? The offer has been made, it's before you now. Or will you reject it because of the fear of the light? or will you receive him and be made entirely new? Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, guide us now so that we might consider the claim that is being made here and recognize that as impossible as it is, the facts of history are so powerful. We pray that it would drive us to you Lord, would you also show us, Lord, this incredible comfort right where we are, that you would enter into our darkness, but ultimately our darkness cannot overcome. And finally, Lord, by your Spirit, enable us to respond to this call that we might receive you and receive new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to The Redeemer, East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing
0: through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.